Hello everyone, my name is Josh Gilliland, blogger for Bowtie Law and The Legal Geeks with Jessica Meterson. Today's podcast focuses on the admissibility of social media evidence. Today's recording is sponsored by NextPoint, a leader in cloud preservation, e-discovery, and trial presentation. I want to thank NextPoint for sponsoring today's podcast, and with me is Jason Krause, from Next Point to talk about cloud preservation. Hello, Jason. Hi. Good to be here, Josh. As always. Well, let's jump into the law and understand what we need to look at when we talk about admissibility of social media. So how do we authenticate electronically stored information in the form of social media? Well, being the good evidence geek, I always look back at the rules. If in federal court, to authenticate evidence, you should look at Federal Rules of Evidence Rule 901. To satisfy the requirement of authenticating or identifying an item of evidence, the proponent must produce evidence sufficient to support a finding that the item is what the proponent claims it is. Well, that's very interesting. How do we do that? The rules give several very helpful examples. Under subsection 901B1, testimony of a witness with knowledge. Very straightforward. Did the person write it? Did they receive it? How are they involved in it? Look at them as a way to help authenticate that piece of social media evidence so they can explain how the item is what it is claimed to be. Subsection three, comparison by an expert witness or the trier of fact. If using an expert witness, that is somebody who went out and collected that electronically stored information from the web, be it Facebook, Twitter, you name it. If there's Instagram evidence, who went out there, how'd they get it? And there's probably gonna be an expert report and other information to explain it. Or the jury or the judge could look at it as well and make the comparison themselves. And then there's the distinctive characteristics and the like. How does it look? Is there a URL? All of this we've talked about for the past decade in authenticating email. There are many cases that talk about email and how to authenticate it based upon its distinctive characteristics. And the same processes and methodology could be applied to social media. And we'll have Jason jump into that in just a couple minutes. Well, let's look at a couple case examples. In this federal case addressing photos from social media, the state introduced photos from the defendant's social media profile in which the defendant had some illegal items, drugs, guns, paraphernalia, that sort of thing. And to authenticate it, the government offered a witness who said he had found the photos on the defendant's social media profiles And the defendant also conceded that the social media profiles were his. This sounds like you have the steps to authenticate something. But the court said no. The court found that these items were not properly admitted. And here's why. The government offered the photographs for more than their mere existence on the uh, defendant's web pages. They were used to suggest that the 
Defendant had possession and control of the pictured weapons, money, and drugs, which gets down to the heart of the matter. A photograph's appearance on a personal social media site does not by itself establish that the owner of the page possessed or controlled the items pictured. Very important. Just because it's there doesn't mean that they own the item. Let's take a look at a California case. In this one, the court stated that photos could be authenticated by any evidence that sufficiently establishes that the photos accurately depict what they purport to show is adequate, including circumstantial evidence, content, and location. Other factors that California courts will look at is the photograph posted on social media uh, can be authenticated by its content, by circumstantial evidence, and other factors that they will look at when somebody's testifying to explain how, whether or not authentication is sufficient. Well, this gets us to how to go out and capture it so we could later authenticate it. And Jason, could you help us out here? You bet. The important thing is that when we talk to lawyers and potential clients, people seem to understand now that social media is discoverable. So we're, we're finally past over that hurdle. You know, most, most people we talk to understand that there is a need to preserve social media evidence for regulatory or, or litigation demands. Still see a lot of, of people who come to us who think that a screenshot or a picture is going to be sufficient. And the important thing to understand is that social media files consist of a lot more than just the text or the post. We're talking about the related links, the videos, the embedded file, and that's all part of the record, and that's an, an important piece of the puzzle for authenticating any social media posting. The other thing that's important to know is that a manual process for archiving social media is just not sustainable or defensible. And the legal hold requirements, when you move uh, data to a review platform, you also have to find, be able to ensure that you're not altering or changing the data uh, when you download it from the social media site to your review platform or however you're going about processing or reviewing the data. So we designed cloud preservation to preserve a lot of data. In fact, basically you're going to capture three copies of everything. You're going to get an image of every page. You're going to get a text file for indexing and searching. And then you also get a complete copy of the page in its native format. And that sort of lets you review the data in the image format, but you retain all of the metadata and, and linked files and associated information that you're going to need for authentication in the uh, native file. Then that can be presented for litigation or to regulators or, you know, whoever's, whoever's demanding social media content. Another piece I wanted to talk about, we can see this is, this is a sample archive. This is actually the city of New York, uh, their 311 line. So you can see, basically, we've set up this great automated process where we're going to go out and crawl uh, these various feeds and collect this data on an automated, automated process. And then you can, you've, got, you've basically got the, um, the summaries and, and capture of, of uh, the complete posting or content or website or whatever you're looking at in, uh, in the various archives. You can see this is what you're actually going to see within an individual posting. And so this is, this is just a basic capture of a, a, a tweet. Um, but you can see on the right-hand side, you've got some, some linked content. You've got all of the metadata and associated information. 
Um, you've, there's a lot of important information that you have to capture. You've got user profiles. You've got to capture information about when an account was created. Um, you know, you've got to capture the the uh, logins for the you know whoever's auth authorized to use an account. <laughs> you've got to be able to capture all of the most useful and often incriminating evidence in order in order to be able to make a case using social media. Because you know, I think as you alluded to. Courts have consistently said that just taking a snapshot or a screen capture of a social media posting is not sufficient. Yeah, let's talk about when you've seen clients authenticate social media, what are questions that the judge can ask them? Well, I think one of the important challenges that you have to negotiate uh, between the parties and the judges is exactly how you're going to go about capturing the social media content. Still a surprising number of cases where the judges basically tell the parties, hand over the social media login information, and then just sort of go at it, like log in and start downloading data. Unfortunately, this has been especially common in family law cases, especially divorce cases, which are always ugly. There's been some unfortunate incidents where people are logging in and messing with the data. And, you know, because especially in cases where emotions are running high, people are just they just want to prove something. They want to prove infidelity or, or someone's an unfit parent or something. And so you've got people deleting data or manipulating data. And, you know, that's just giving someone the keys to your social media site is just a recipe for disaster. So, you know, we've, we've set an, up an authentication framework that works with the, um, within the social media sites uh, settings, you know, for example, if you want to crawl a Facebook page, we have basically set it up so you get a message that says, you know, Jason wants to authorize next point to crawl your Facebook page. And at that point, you, you know, can click OK or no, or, you know, and then, and then I get a message back on how, how you responded to proceed. And then so you've, you've already created a uh, copy. You've got, you've got the information and you've basically, you're then able to go back and authenticate and show the judge, you know, when and how this person was given access to the site and, and how you proceeded and what, what exactly you did with that information. Very interesting. These social media and family law, I think, is probably the largest area where we're seeing social media come in. And it doesn't get a lot of press because it's not a giant trial. How, with that stated, when you're talking about custody to somebody's kids, I don't think there's anything more important than that in a case. And so those judges, I think, are, are seeing social media evidence probably daily. God knows how many hearings each day that they see it, but I bet it's there. And I cannot help but wonder if they're actually authenticating it properly, what questions they're asking. It'd be an interesting experiment to go hang out at the local courthouse and watch an hour of hearings and see what's there. The other place would be in the TRO calendar. Those happen all the time with the Facebook messages or slanderous tweets, and judges are seeing those. I think those are probably the substance of a TRO. And I know here in Santa Clara, the judge who handled that calendar last year, who's currently the discovery judge this year, quite knowledgeable on that with cell phone video coming in and tweets and Facebook bombs and everything. He's 
was quite knowledgeable about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think in a lot of those cases, there's just a, a knee-jerk reaction that we have to limit the costs and keep the costs as low as possible. And that discovery, if, if, if we allow extensive discovery, we're just going to open the door to, in the, you know, uh, charge costs that, you know, these parties just can't afford. Um, and I think it's important for people to understand that it's not necessarily, it's not a huge expense necessarily to, to do proper authentication because the information's all there. Like the metadata, there's extensive metadata in, in, just built into these social media sites. And if you, you know, take a little time and do, do things properly, uh, authentication should not be a prohibitively expensive endeavor. Well, doing the job right is part of your duty of competency to your client. And when lawyers get on their high horse saying e-discovery is prohibitively expensive without talking to a service provider, without doing any research, I don't think they're doing their clients any favors when they just pronounce that. That'd be like me pronouncing your fees are too high. <laughs> totally inappropriate. You need to have facts to be able to understand it. And I don't understand where this hesitation is to talk to people with knowledge on how to go out and collect something properly. It is a very odd phenomenon because no one who does construction defect litigation <laughs> takes the point of view that we don't need an expert. We can go tear apart the house ourselves for a destructive test. You can't, you can't do that. <laughs> and I, I think it fundamentally goes to the duty of competency in representing your clients that you have to talk to the people with the know-how on how to accomplish something. And if that's preserving a tweet or a Facebook status message or whatever the case is, so you can find the information quickly and be able to authenticate it later. Yeah, yeah, that's a dangerous assumption to make is always that discovery is gonna be too expensive before you even look at the issues, you know. Not, not to toot our horn too much, but you know, we have very reasonable pricing plans for all, all kinds of cases. So there's, there's no excuse not to look into the issue before assuming that social media discovery is too expensive. I've recommended you guys to, to friends who've had questions before and others. There are a lot of people have very reasonable prices, especially when it's whether you're going after a hard drive or you're trying to capture social media. It's not inherently impossible or cost prohibitive to go out and do that without doing the due diligence to at least get it correctly, as opposed to trying to do it wrong or turning your paralegal into a witness by having the paralegal go out and do screenshots. There, there are times when that will work. A screenshot can be properly authenticated. You know, it's a matter of the court says it's okay, but you need to be able to explain all the factors and saying, this is what I did, this is what I looked at. I would. I would personally prefer being able to show the URL, any metadata that was captured, the timestamp, all those factors for a witness to be able to testify, this is what I looked at, this is what I did, and this was the methodology that I used to capture it. And that could simply be, I looked at it and hit print. <laughs> I mean, like, that works. But there are more sophisticated ways to go out and get it and get more information. Yep, and they're, they're not necessarily prohibitively difficult or expensive. Exactly. You know, and, as, and as soon as someone challenges your, your screenshot or your print screen, you have no, def I mean, you basically flip over the paper and there's nothing else there. 
um, as opposed to the, you know an actual native copy of of the of the actual file, which you flip it over and you've got all the information you could ever need. Totally preferable because when you're dealing with, say, it's the custody of somebody's kids or a murder trial, whatever the situation is, you want to be competent in what you've done to go out and preserve it correctly so you can authenticate it later and get it in. So I think that's the biggest takeaway on how to do the job correctly. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm just glad we've, we've gotten over the hurdle and gotten people to understand that social media is, in fact, discoverable. Now, now the trick is just to make sure that they do it properly. Well, and the other half of that is for people to recognize social media is just electronically stored information. Right. It doesn't get special rules. It's just it's electronically stored information, just as a text message, <laughs> email, Excel file, or access database. It's just another form of electronically stored information. Exactly. I mean, there's there's always there's some interesting challenges when you talk about social media because it is dynamic. It does change on an ongoing basis. But you're you're absolutely right. It's subject to the exact same rules, the exact same uh, uh, federal rules as any other you know, piece of, of information for discovery. In addition to the state rules. Now, the, right. states, the states do get interesting because when you look at, say, California's rules, we have a very good evidence code, similar to but different than the Fed. You look at New York State, which does not have rules of evidence. They use common law. And Judge Matthew Scanaro, who did the famous Twitter opinion, I know he, he's written a couple articles about that, and they do have, I believe, a bench book for judges on the admissibility of ESI in New York State, which is also kind of fascinating to look at on how they deal with it. But the long and short of it is the rules that we've used for 200 years apply to tweets and text messages and comments and YouTube videos embedded on a Facebook profile. And at another time, we'll talk about the hearsay issues with multiple layers of hearsay with a YouTube video <laughs> embedded on a Facebook profile. Because we now have layered hearsay to, to contend with. Excellent. We'll, we'll do that for next time. <laughs> I look forward to that podcast. Definitely. Well, Jason, thank you. And I want to thank NextPoint again for sponsoring today's discussion of admissibility of social media evidence. To learn more, more about NextPoint, check out nextpoint.com. We have some great white papers and other information you can check out. And Jason, have a wonderful day in Madison, and we'll see you very soon. You bet. Thanks again, Josh.